0: You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no-gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and basically overall adulting, with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by CamWorks, LLC. Happy Sunday, and welcome to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast. I am your host, elder millennial big sis and fellow brunch enthusiast, Kristen Atherton. I am so excited to be recording the very first episode of Toast today. And I hope that you all are going to enjoy going on this journey with me. This podcast is designed to give you all the information you need to free yourself financially. And if I may say so. Do it like a girl. Everything about personal finance is a game. Kind of like dating. So the first thing that you need to know are the rules. And today, we're going to get into the rules, which will include the history of money, different types of economies, and what the U.S. economy looks like presently. After that, We'll switch gears to look at a more personal mindset, including rich versus wealthy and the differences there, Um, the YOLO lifestyle, even if that ages me or makes me a little irrelevant to the younger population, to even use that term, the differences between women and men with their money, or else that could go on all night long. And what you can do right now to start setting yourself up for success. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the origins of this podcast, why I wanted to start it, and who the heck I even am to have the audacity to think I can teach you anything. And trust me, after today's episode, it won't get so obnoxious with me, myself, and I, although anecdotes will be offered all the way through. So Kristen, avocado toast, where did that come from? About five years ago, an Australian real estate mogul, air quotes around mogul, um, named Tim Gurner, he made the comment heard around the world via a Time Magazine tweet that basically millennials are unable to afford buying their own homes because they spend their money on frivolous bullshit, that's my addition to his quote, Um, such as avocado toast. All right, well... According to his LinkedIn, Tim has founded two property development companies in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, so he's not doing so bad, right? The first one he started after he graduated with a Bachelor of Business in Commerce from Queen's College in Melbourne, which he worked at for nine years. And the second, current company, he started two years prior to leaving the first and has been working for. The past 10 years. So based on several articles I found, thank you, Google, Gurner's net worth at the time of the Time tweet was roughly half a billion US dollars. However, before you book your plane ticket to Melbourne and try to weasel your way into this man's red room of pain for any chance at his paper know that this 40-year-old multimillionaire with a presumably super sexy Australian accent is definitively married. Yes, I checked. Side note, is it just me that thinks Aussie accents sound like the nectar of the gods? I mean, I love me an Australian accent sigh in any case girls save your cash for much less of a long shot okay so besides his fortune and his clearly out of touch view on avocado toast particularly is the reason we can't buy houses mm, why do we care about some loaded australian dude i'm glad you asked Besides the name of this podcast being, you know, a little bit of a cheeky wink at his quote, and also Marie Antoinette's quote, let them eat cake, we we don't, actually. This This podcast isn't about Timmy Boy. This podcast is about you. It's a little bit about me, but it's about being a millennial, or Gen Z, rhyme unintended but totally worked there. So... It's really about figuring out how to adult a little bit, a lot of it. And most importantly, it's a no gimmicks approach to building personal wealth, which will gain you freedom, peace of mind, and my favorite part, empowerment. I know, if that sounds really terrible, I totally understand. You are more than welcome to finish that mimosa and dip. But if that sounds like something that you want to learn more about, stick around. I got you. We haven't even gotten to the main course yet. Okay, so who am I? Well, hey girls, I'm Kristen. Super nice to meet you. A little bit about myself. Um, And this is going to come off as bragging, sorry, it's just kind of a, let me tell you my qualifications as if I'm sitting in an interview and you are interviewing me for the position of being that bitch that tells you how to do money. Okay, so roll with me on this one. I'm I'm basically, I'm offering my interview to you. So, I am on the elder side of millennial. Thank you to Eliza Schlesinger for coming up with the term. I'm at 36 years old right now, 36 and a half, going on 37. You know, she's got a couple years on me, but still pretty high up there. Tim is right at the cutoff with 40, I think. I think that's like as old as elder millennial gets. In any case, I grew up mm, within a 20-mile linear radius of I-10 for the vast majority of my life, though not all in one place. And if you're not familiar with linear radius, it's basically following a line, and it's 20 miles on either side is what I'm telling you. So I grew up in the South, basically. I have a bachelor's degree Um, a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering from Texas A&M University. And I also minored in chemistry, but no one really seems to care about that. And I did all of that, and I graduated with honors. So I am not the dullest crayon in the box, is what I'm getting at. I have worked for the last 12 years as a project engineer at various oil and gas companies in Texas and New Mexico up until the pandemic in 2020. And I started working on my MBA in January of 2021. I still have about a year to go in my MBA. So halfway done. Yay me. I also bought my first home at 28 years old. And I did that with a full 20% down payment. And that's an important figure, but we will get more into that when we get into the home buying episode. And I also bought my second home with all of the principal that I gained from my first home. Again, a concept we will get into further in the home buying episode. But highly important. At this point, I do not own a home because I moved to a very expensive city and I am not working, but, well, and I'm paying tuition. So I am living off my savings currently, but the reason that I'm capable of doing that is because three months after my 34th birthday, I had amassed a net worth of $1 million dollars. My net worth today, even while paying tuition out of pocket and living off my savings, is still presently in the seven-figure range. And that's despite a few people's best efforts, but for legal reasons, I cannot actually tell that story on a podcast, unfortunately, because it is juicy. So, honestly, I gained... Uh, enough personal wealth at an early enough age that my wealth advisor even asked me one time like girl how did you get so much money did like at your age like this is unheard of did you did you steal this for the record and for the IRS I did not steal this money everything I have Came through a legitimate channel, and I have paid taxes on everything I'm supposed to, IRS agents. So, yeah. The reason I'm telling you all of that stuff is because the mindset and methodology that I'm going to share with you over the course of this podcast. Are what I used to be able to say all of those personal finance tidbit tidbits just now that I disclosed to you. I used all of that. All of these methods. All of this mindset. That's how I got to this point. You know, as one of my exes once told me, the first million is the hardest to come by. And, you know, bless that guy's heart, he was wrong about a heck of a lot of things. But that, that was not one of those things. That is absolutely true. Now, I first thought about compiling all of this information into a book. But, you know, two years after birthing the idea, I barely made any progress on that book. And, you know, I've been getting pushed recently from one of my friends who basically said, you know, hurry up and finish that book because I I need it. <laughs> and and last year, um, you know, fun story, a little bit of a side note, but not really. A couple of friends that I left back in New Mexico started a podcast uh, about dating in Albuquerque. Their podcast is called This Ain't About Us, and it's available on Spotify. They are currently recording season two. Um, So shout out to Kristen and Alex. But it was the demand to get my ideas out, coupled with the inspiration from those two girls and their first season, that really gave me this idea to move forward as a podcast first, and hopefully a book later on down the line. So, okay, cool, great, you know, I've got a vision, awesome, we love a good vision, but why listen to me? Why not listen to, say, you know, what, what Tim was trying to actually tell us in the article and in his interview, rather than just his, you know, millennial bashing? You know, why not listen to that guy who wrote, ooh, I, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Like, that one's a good one. Or or you could listen to that one guy that you went out with. You know, the one that was like, mm, I don't know. He was like getting into NFTs and stuff. And he was talking like, Ugh, you don't know what NFTs are? How dumb are you? Right? And then there's like that guy who made so much money with Bitcoin. Oh, we could listen to that guy talk for hours. Because Bitcoin is kind of like kind of like crossfit you know and that it's the opposite of fight club and the first rule is you always talk about bitcoin and then the second rule is you always talk about bitcoin right Are, you know we could also talk about the ma- you know like listen to that mad money guy that's on tv but did did you did you pay close attention to what i just said because i said it like five or six times just now I'll spell it out for you. G-U-Y. That's why you can listen to me and not those guys. Because basically all of the money books that are out there and the articles, you know, all of the experts, they're all men, you know, right men writing for other men, men making shows for other men, men making podcasts for other men to teach men about making money. For men, by men. And not to knock the ladies that have written their own versions, because there are some out there. But they they kind of tend to write their money information or present it in a way that's pretty androgynous. And the point of that is because they want to capture the male audience, right? Because historically speaking, men are going to pay more attention to that kind of thing. So they would make more money and and move upward and gain status faster by catering to the male audience, right? Also, side note, does everything that we do as women really need to be in pursuit of male attention? Because its I just feel like it's getting so old. But maybe it's just me and I'm getting old and I'm, like, so over their bullshit. I don't know. Side note over. The other glaring misnomer about money and talking about money and helping other people learn about managing money and personal finance and personal wealth, all that good stuff, that really seems to elude everyone I've ever listened to or talked to or read like their stuff about money is it's this. Money isn't just about dollars and cents. Money isn't just about math, budgets, percentages, etc., etc., etc. I mean, you don't go spend money on makeup because it's an investment in your future. Although that's a <laughs> that could be a really wonderful justification, right? Like if you look extra beautiful because of the expensive makeup then you have a better chance of attracting the attention of, let's say, a financially super well-endowed suitor. Therefore, making sure that that makeup is actually an investment in yourself and your future net worth, right? However, great justification, but you probably didn't buy the makeup for that reason. You probably bought makeup because when you put it on, you feel good about yourself. You feel pretty, right? That's why I wear makeup. It makes me feel alive and awake and beautiful and ready to face the world. Like I have my face on. I'm a bad bitch today. You know, there's so much about money and the things that we spend it on that are absolutely not rational. They're not calculated. You can't just sit back and, and think, man, if I spend that money on this avocado toast today, then I'm not going to have that money to put toward a house tomorrow. You're thinking, holy shit. I have so much tea to spill to Lindsay and to Caitlin when I get together with them. When we have all those mimosas and, mm, you know what, avo toast sounds really good today. I think I'm gonna get that one instead of you know that that waffle and chicken thing that I've got. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not feeling the fried chicken today. Although the waffles are super rad, but mm, avo toast just sounds like like the money maker right now. So I'm going with that. Yeah. Like I said, has nothing, 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 nothing to do with, oh, you know what? If I go to brunch today, I can't buy a house in a year and a half. Well, like, bitch, please. You're going to brunch today and we're getting bottomless mimosas. Duh. Right? Like, sorry. All of these money decisions are not always going to be rational and calculated. They're going to be emotional. They're going to be pleasure-seeking. And so any discussion about money and personal wealth is absolutely 100% missing a key component if you cannot or will not talk about emotions. So my last question, Final piece uh, to plug myself on that particular point is that I have a Myers-Briggs personality type as an INFJ. And if you're not familiar, the F stands for feeling. I am also, for the more astrologically inclined of you listening, even if the boys tell us we're dumb for thinking this, I am a Cancer Sun, a Cancer Moon, and a Sagittarius rising. So trust me when I say, girls, I have emotions fucking covered. Okay? I have them covered. So, you know, if none of that seems to qualify me to you as someone to listen to about money, that's super no problem. Thank you for listening so far. And, you know, feel free to, out at this point like it's it's okay I but I I absolutely promise you you're going to be missing out you know maybe I'm horribly unqualified to talk about money you know you could decide that listen at your own risk but if I haven't talked you out of it by now then I guess that means you're sticking around you're an Instagram junkie like me then throughout the years you have seen all those memes that kind of you know throw shade at basically our education in the past as far as preparing us to be adults preparing us for tax season preparing us to manage our money at home that sort of thing you know no one really learned the stuff in school and it's funny because I, I actually ran the idea for this podcast by my mom uh, about a month or so ago when I first came up with it and you know I was telling her I was like people are complaining no one taught us this stuff in school everyone's kind of getting to the point in adulthood where they all feel like they are missing you know, key pieces of education in order to be successful adults in the United States. And she said, Kristen, it never was offered in school. No one learned this. So I don't know if that makes you more mad or less mad, but it's not an our generation problem. This is an everyone problem. This is a purposeful gap. In our early education. And you know, much of how to be an adult wasn't even taught in Home Egg. And that technically has economics in the class name. Most of what I learned came from growing up in a very money conscious, middle class family to a couple of very money savvy parents. Money got talked about in our home. Not how much they had, but financial goals, retirement, savings, budgeting, managing money, types of monetary accounts. All of that stuff got talked about. Shoot, my mom even told me when the stock market didn't do so hot after, you know, the... Oh, it was after the World Trade Center collapse, after Enron, you know, all of that stuff happening in 01-02... It really, um, it really kicked the market right in the balls a little bit. And my mom came up to me when I was 15 and said, Kristen, you know, like, or maybe I was 16 or 17 at the time. In any case, I was a teenager. I was in high school. I'm, you know, having to get ready to go to college in the next couple of years. And my mom, like, she comes in and tells me that my college fund took a hit. And frankly, I probably stared at her like I was completely dumb because I didn't know what she was talking about because I knew that they'd been saving for me for college, but I had no, much, like, no idea how much money was in there. I didn't know how it was managed. I did not understand. That was beyond the understanding capacity that I had for money at that time period. But the point is, is that my parents actually talked to me about that. So the knowledge that I gained from all of this stuff at home, plus a personal penchant for hoarding my cash, which I think is a personality trait, that got me down a path of saving and eventually investing, which is how I am where I am today financially. It took me 12 years To get that first million after I got my bachelor's degree and I even got a divorce and I was laid off for almost a year during that time period and I was still able to get up to a million so I can't make any guarantees that you're going to get there in the same amount of time really can't guarantee that you'll get there faster. But I can guarantee that you will be well on your way if you take what I have to tell you and apply it to your life. Because keeping up with the Joneses or, you know, in our generation's way of putting it, the Kardashians will leave you broke as fuck. Many, if not most people in this country are complete slaves to their paychecks. It's ironic, isn't it, that the land of the free is actually the land of indentured servants to credit card companies and the banks? A friend of mine from the UK once told me that I was one of the only people she knew younger than her in the U.S. that could manage to get laid off and actually afford to wait to find a position that paid me what I used to make, even if it meant waiting a year through an economic downturn. To me, that's financial freedom. And that's why money is important, because it's a, it's a giant safety net for anything that could possibly go wrong that you can't think of. In my old job as a project manager, we called that contingency. And, you know, I think it's high time that we make financial freedom part of what we mean when we're all hashtag America, don't you? I think it's almost a little bit embarrassing as a country that financial freedom is un-American. I think we should change that narrative. But how, how do we do that? Well... The first thing we have to do is learn the rules of engagement. Now, that sounds like war games. And if you wanted to, you know, you could probably apply the art of war and some of that strategy to this. And for those who don't know, who aren't familiar, the art of war is an ancient Chinese text that literally discusses the psychological art of war. But it can be used for any situation can be modified and utilized in any situation where you may have some level of adversarial opponent on a psychological basis. I would strongly recommend that you pick it up. If you haven't, it's one of those old ancient texts that I think really brings the wisdom of the ancients into modern day times. If you haven't read it and then you start philosophizing and you think you've come up with something new it might already be in there so just go ahead and and let let the ancient wisdom just overtake your soul but that aside and Lao Tzu is not alive today so he can't pay me to plug the art of war that's just another thing that you should just do that aside as with any strategy game there's there's rules you have to follow. There are ways to win, there are ways to lose, but the best part is, there's always some level of ambiguity in the rules. So the key is learning those rules effectively so that when you have the hang of it, you know which rules you can bend and which rules you can break. Legally, of course, I'm not trying to get anyone to visit from the IRS, myself included. So now we're gonna get into all the good stuff at this point. So let's first talk about the history of money. What even is money, and where did it come from? Well, One of my textbooks for my MBA actually starts a chapter off almost just like that. So I'm going to be referring to that textbook here. And you know what? Hey, check you out. You're getting free knowledge that I had to pay for. So (laughs) great return on your investment in this podcast so far, I'd say. All right. So once upon a time, people used items of value to trade. A good fun example of this was like in The Wedding Singer uh, where Adam Sandler's character Robbie gives out sweet old lady singing lessons and lets her pay him in meatballs. It's a great exchange because he enjoys the meatballs and she gets to learn to sing on key to impress her husband at their 50th wedding anniversary party. So very sweet, very cute, very heartwarming. But what if, let's say, I have a really nice car And you need a car to get around town. But all you have to offer me in exchange for my car is an airplane. An airplane is cool, but, you know, I I can't drive it around town. I mean, plus, it'd be a nightmare to find anywhere to park it. So, I don't know. No deal, man. I like my car still. Right? So money then serves a purpose because it gives us what my textbook calls a medium of exchange. In other words, you don't have to have some specific good or service that I want or need in order to be able to make a deal with me. You want my car, you have money. You offer me money for my car. That money you offer me could probably get me another car. So now your random airplane in the city is no longer a deal-breaker. But how do you determine the value of the car? Well, money serves another purpose here. It acts as what they call a unit of account. Basically, money is used to track the value of any item. So in reality, you may have tried to trade your airplane with me for my car, but my car has 85,000 miles on it and your airplane is a new G5, so your airplane has a much higher value than my car. You'd have been making a pretty terrible value trade now that we have money to act as our medium. The other thing is, I don't have to go buy a new car today. I might take your money and you know, just get an Uber or a Lyft for a while if I have to go anywhere. The money that you gave me has a third purpose. It acts as what they call a store of value in that it keeps its value over time. I can save that money that you gave me and delay my consumption until sometime in the future. Plus, it's a heck of a lot easier for me to carry around money than it is to carry around an airplane. Can you even imagine? When they started making money like we know it today, they generally made money out of materials that had intrinsic value, like gold, silver, rare shells, that kind of thing. One of the most prominent historical families in history, um, flexing my history muscles a little bit, is the Medici family of Florence. And the Medicis were bankers, if you are unfamiliar. They used practices in their bank, such as promissory notes of payment, which they called bills of sale. And those notes carried great value on a piece of paper with the promise of receiving gold later. So it was kind of a starting point for getting into paper money. Notes of sale. Bills of sale bills dollar bills see what I'm saying so after a while gold pieces of gold coins of gold started to be replaced with you know as active currency with paper money and less valuable coins but gold was still used to back up the value of those paper money and coin pieces And that was in place for, I'd say, the 19th century into about the time of the Great Depression. And it was after the Great Depression had been underway for several years that the U.S. and the U.K. ended up abandoning the gold standard, which is what it's called to have gold backing up your currency, and they moved into what's called a fiat currency. So here's your vocab lesson. Fiat is derived from the Latin word fieri, which means an arbitrary act or decree. Fiat currency is currency because the government has decreed it so. So basically, the US dollar has value because the US government says it has value. Side note here, there were still remnants of the gold standard for 40 years after the New Deal, um, but it was completely done away with by 1973. So if you see pieces of information that state that the gold standard was done away with in 1973, you're not wrong. I'm not wrong either. It just so happens that they started it And it wasn't completely abandoned until the 70s. It was started in the 30s. Okay? So we are all on the same page. Now, if you want to learn more about the gold standard, there is a great Investopedia article about it that gets into a lot of details for the history nerds that are out there like me. So you can go look that up. Um, You can Google gold standard. What is gold standard? You can go look up investopedia.com and then search for gold standard, however you wanna do it, that's a great one. Great little link right there. So recently, as I'm sure you've all seen and heard about from the Chad Bros and Kyles of the world, we have seen a rise in what they call cryptocurrency, such as the most popular one to date, Bitcoin. Now, cryptocurrencies are electronic only they have no physical form. You cannot touch a cryptocurrency. You can touch a computer, you can get electrocuted, but you cannot touch the cryptocurrency. Crypto is also not backed by any government. So that's where it's you know, kind of up and down um, and people are on the fence about it. That's That's why there's so much controversy and it's talked about in the way that it is. Is because there is no government entity that backs the value of cryptocurrency. Now, crypto is well beyond the scope of today's episode, but we will come back to it, I promise. I have some research to do on it myself because I want to talk about it in a way that actually makes sense. So we will come back to crypto another time in the meantime if you have netflix which most people do so if you don't i apologize i would recommend watching the movie laundromat for For one, it's got a really great prologue to the movie, and so you can watch the first five minutes of it and then be done with it. Um, And that will help you visualize some of the things I just went over about the history of money and its evolution through the years. I mean, it's it's really great condensed version of what I just tried to do. It also gets into, if you continue to watch the whole movie, it gets into some of the loopholes that exist around money. And it does it in a way that I at least found it to be entertaining. Um, It's loosely based on the Panama Papers, if you heard about that in the news uh, a couple years back. So anyway, this is a personal recommendation. I'm not being paid to say that unless, you know, somebody from the movie wants to call me. That'd be cool. Okay, so pipe dreams aside, let's keep going. Money as we know it today has really only existed as is for the last 50 years right so we got rid of the gold standard in 1973 unfortunately for people born in the 80s you know that was actually almost 50 years ago and so we're sitting here going I can't be that old but we are yeah sorry guys that was a depressing moment but it's pretty crazy to think about you know because we've been alive for over half of that time and we have been alive for almost the entire duration of being off the gold standard so if you think about it generations before us have different views on money because the way that the economy was run and the way currency was was different right okay so at this point Pretty much the whole world is using that concept of fiat currency or a government-backed currency. Now, obviously, you see a couple of countries starting to um, legally allow cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin officially at a, you know, a, a national level. I think Brazil may have just done that. Um, I think Australia and Japan may have allowed it as a legal tender in those countries I don't know don't quote me on that but in any case with that you know aside what we're really kind of getting into is today and and crypto aside we'll we'll get to crypto later you know but most of what we're expecting to see in the world is a fiat currency a government backed valued system And we can get into a global mindset later on down the line. But for now, I want to look at the different types of economies that are possible, or at least the ones that have been currently philosophized about. So as you're probably aware, we live in what's known as a market-based economy here in the U.S. And that's also known as capitalism. So in this economy, individuals and businesses are encouraged to privately determine how much they participate in the economy, both how much they consume and how much they invest. Trade and production are controlled by private owners rather than by the state. So individuals have property rights, meaning that they can own resources that could generate wealth and then they get to make decisions on how to use those resources, which means that they could reap the returns or the losses of those decisions. As a result of these rights and ownership, individuals can generate personal wealth from these resources. The Wealth of Nations is a book written by a Scottish philosopher and economist named Adam Smith, which I would recommend if you want to learn more about capitalism from one of its early proponents. He's basically the Karl Marx of capitalism. And that book's from like 1776. So again, I'm not getting paid to tell you about that and Adam Smith. The philosopher that wrote Wealth of Nations, because I'm sure there's plenty of other Adam Smiths in the world right now, that Adam Smith is not alive, and he did not pay me to to say that. So, thank you. By contrast, though, to this market-based system that is capitalism, there are also what are known as command-based economic systems. And in those systems, the government plans and controls all economic activity, where to make investments, what production targets to set, and the appropriate allocation of tasks among workers. One of the most prominent figures advocating against capitalism is Karl Marx, who is an author, philosopher, and the founder of communism. Marx argued that capitalism would lead to a dramatic inequality between the relatively few rich people who owned the means of production and the thousands of poor workers that they employed. Marx believed that this inequality would result in a worker revolution and communism would result whereby workers would organize the economy. Most governments that we call communist around the world are actually run as more socialist economies. So instead of everything being owned by the workers themselves, there is a central government that plans the economy, owns the factors of production, and is the distributor of goods and services in that country. So these types of command-based economies tend to value the collective above the individual, and they eliminate or reduce private ownership. They also maintain a centralized plan for the allocation of production, investment, and consumption. Regardless of your political opinions on capitalism, socialism, and communism, the fact is, that we in the US live in a capitalist society. There is some effort to create socialist policies in certain segments of the US economy, which may or may not be beneficial. But a quick reminder that the point is to let you know what the game is and how it operates. The name of the game is capitalism. And if you complain that it's unfair, you're missing the point. The point is that in our capitalist society, it is actually possible to generate wealth individually. Not generating your own wealth only means that you are not succeeding in the game yet. So one thing I want you to be aware of before we switch off the big picture is the role of the government in our economy. We can go into great details here. I'm going to give you a crash lesson in macroeconomics, which if you're unfamiliar with the term or I just made your eyeballs go across, it's the big picture. What's happening at the whole country level, Okay, like a bird's eye view, like we're looking at the whole country, macroeconomics is that's all it means. The The bigger picture, the big economics, the big economy. Okay, so the result of any type of economy, and that is, again, market-based or command-based, so socialism, capitalism, or communism, the result is always the same and can be summarized with one word, output. All economies generate output. The measure of that output is called gross domestic product and it is how economists and governments measure each country lined up against each other. Governments can do some things to affect the health of their economies. This is called fiscal policy. These policies usually involve taxation and government spending. So things like lowering taxes To encourage private spending is a fiscal policy. Increasing government spending to stimulate economic growth, that's a fiscal policy. In the US, the Federal Reserve Bank, also known as the Fed, is intended to operate separate from the governmental fiscal policies. The Fed will implement what are called monetary policies, which include the volume of currency, so how many dollars are allowed to be out and about in circulation, interest rates, and that's been all over the news for the last few months, and other banking rules. The point of monetary policy is to change consumption habits, either hoping to get people to consume less or consume more. So basically, What I've just told you is that everything our government and national bank do is to try to keep our economy healthy by influencing consumption. Or rather, your spending. When you have your money, a.k.a. you're a money hoarder like me, This is contrary to the monetary and fiscal policies designed to drive up GDP. So if, as a collective, we all started hoarding our money, demand for consumer goods would go down. When demand decreases, generally the price drops. This is called deflation. If demand stays low for a long time, producers will stop producing as much and supply will drop too, bringing us to a new economic equilibrium. Usually though, until the supply falls, prices will continue to drop and deflation could get out of control. So that's why countries tend to try to maintain a small inflation rate where prices rise a little bit each year. But that can also get out of control, which is why the government and the national bank implements those sorts of policies. They're doing their jobs properly, at least on a high level. We're not going to get into performance reviews right now. And if they're trying to keep the mod you know, they're trying to keep the economy to a modest inflationary state. That isn't to say that government agents, politicians, they're all evil trying to fuck you over where it hurts you the most in your wallet, you know. They might be, but that's that's not the point. My point is that while they are over here looking at the macro level, the big picture they are encouraging the collective to consume when you consume money stays in circulation when you hang on to your money it is not circulating that the tools that they have to maintain the economy don't work if you take your money out of circulation so they're not going to be encouraging you to save all of your money and build your personal net worth they want you to shit they need you to spend for them to be able to have a fighting chance this is where our country has kind of gotten itself into a bind because no one at that level is going to pay attention to how you got that money to keep consuming. There are so many ways to spend more than you actually have in this country. And no one at that level is going to help you with that. You have got to be responsible for your own situation. Only you can prevent yourself from getting into a bind. So when government officials go on the TV and tell you to spend the money that they gave you as a stimulus or as a tax return, just know that they're not thinking about your personal situation. You need to manage your own home. You and your family, if you have others depending on you, are an economy of your own. You have to do what's right for your own economy. Basically, you're running your own business even if it's a business of one and you need your business to be profitable enough to at least stay in business and eventually grow. This is capitalism after all, let's at least take advantage of it. So you've heard me say wealth quite a bit. Why don't I say rich? First of all, rich is a perception is rich what you make is rich what you have and what constitutes as rich so i personally listen to a lot of hip-hop and RB. is rich being able to wake up in a new bugatti after just getting completely faded the night before is rich being able to fix your teeth or Take someone on a dinner date on a G5. I mean, rich is super relative. To the 61.4% of the global population that lives on less than $10 a day, anyone who can afford to do something like, oh, I don't know, what's a good example? Say maybe... Listen to a podcast from your phone or computer? Anyone who can do that is rich as fuck. Advanced economies, which includes the U.S., represents about 40% of the the global population. And of the 332 million people in the U.S., almost 90% of us can be considered upper-middle to high-income levels on a global scale as defined by the Pew Research Center. So the point of all of this research is, you're already rich, bitch. You're probably not a billionaire and maybe not even a millionaire, but you're richer than 60% of the global population. Well, is that not what you mean? Okay, let's, let's talk a little closer to home. The poverty line in the US is an annual income of $26,500 meant to help and provide for a family of four. And that's according to peoplekeep.com. USA Today defined the US middle class as having a household income between 50 to $135,000 annually. And a U.S. news article from July 2021 showed that respondents to Schwab's 2021 Modern Wealth Survey said that a net worth of 1.9 million qualifies a person as wealthy. For the average U.S. household, net worth is less than half of that. My guess is that none of you listening is below the poverty line. So most of you probably fall solidly in the middle class bubble. You've probably heard talk about the 1%, fear not, I'm about to tell you what that means. According to epi.org, the top 1% of earners made at least 719,000 dollars annually. Just to give you a comparison, the top 0.1% earned at least $2.7 million annually every year. $2.7 million a year. Ugh. Oh my gosh, what kind of money you would have. To give you a better contrast there, the top 10% of earners made $118,000 which, if you remember, falls solidly inside the upper part of the middle class. And the average annual income in the U.S. in 2017 was $53,474. So top 10% is still middle class. And the average is the top 50%. Is $53,000 all right you may also have heard of what I like to call the lottery effect that would be where someone experiences a large influx of money such as winning the lottery and they go on a big old spending spree and then when they run out of money they wonder what happened and like basically end up in the same place that they started right like People think, oh, if I won the lottery, it would change my life. But you would have to be smart about your money. You couldn't just go on a spending spree. There's also the concept of what my dad might call the poor mindset, and the lottery effect is somewhat part of that. Um, But it would be spending your money on things like luxury goods while negating necessities. So for an example... You got yourself a fantastic new luxury car in the driveway, but you have a hole in the middle of the living room floor, and you're not doing anything to fix it. You can't even afford to fix it, probably because of that car in your driveway. Now, I've heard a couple of terms describing this from listening to hip hop music. I'm definitely not allowed to use one of them, I'm not sure if I can use the other one, but I think I'm allowed, and that term is hood rich. Basically, if you buy flashy luxury things to impress other people and feel good about yourself, you won't have that money anymore. Those flashy luxury items don't typically show up when you calculate your net worth. They're not typically considered assets on a financial balance sheet. And guess what? Basically doing your own home budget is a financial balance sheet, but we will make it accessible. So don't freak out yet. Those things may make people think that you are rich, but at the end of the day, rich doesn't actually pay you the bills, like pay the bills or keep you in business. This kind of mindset is in large part why 63% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, according to policyadvice.net. I mean, you only live once, right? Hashtag YOLO. So take that trip, buy that car, treat yourself, girl. That mindset is a clear and understandable backlash against the generations before us who have accepted this idea of work until you're 60, retire, and then go live your life. That YOLO li- uh, lifestyle, that YOLO mindset is not entirely wrong. Life is happening right now. But you also can't have everything. Sorry. You have to find balance between hashtag YOLO, hashtag treat yourself, and not blowing everything you have because, oh, that's a problem for another day. So stop trying to be rich. And in fact, don't even try to be considered wealthy according to the definitions I just gave. I mean, maybe eventually, but not right now. For now, let's focus on getting you to be financially free, getting yourself a solid safety net, and building your life on your own terms. The best part about that is unlike, you remember Tim from the beginning? Unlike Tim, I'm not going to tell you to give up avocado toast. Well, not necessarily. (laughs) So did you know that in the U.S. today, there's over $1 trillion in credit card debt? That's over $6,000 per cardholder. And there's also $1.8 trillion in student loans which comes out to nearly $40,000 per student. And at this point, the U.S. government is nearly $30 trillion in debt, which is $238,000 per taxpayer, according to usdebtclock.org. So... Let's say you are both in credit card debt and student loan debt and you have an average amount, which means you have $6,000 in credit card debt and $40,000 in student loans. So you are $46,000 in debt before you even talk about a car, a house, anything like that. The average savings per family is just $18,500, $18,000 per family. So if you and your husband both have credit card debt and both have student loans, you two are sitting on top of $92,000 in debt with a combined collected $18,500 in savings. AKA, you guys are super in the red. And fun story, there's limits to how much you can actually put away in retirement savings before getting taxed on it. Remember what I said about macroeconomic policy? They'll tax you to deter you from saving more. Because they want you to keep the money circulating all right we're gonna switch gears a little bit and I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about women versus men did you know that women are actually better investors than men this has been proven this is an actual thing I know I know we're not just talking about investing just yet you know, we're, we're kind of starting small with the savings and stuff, but hear me out. Women investors have actually seen greater returns than men have on average, according to a 2021 Fidelity study titled Women and Investing. The reason for this is that women trade less, which allows them to ride out market lows and avoid extra fees. They also tend to invest more consistently. Than men meaning women aren't trying to time the market okay so do you remember how I said money is all about emotions well this is a prime example of how men are actually letting their emotions get the best of them when they invest and men think we're the emotional ones (laughs) silly All right, so despite the amazing investment performance of women, we tend to be less confident than men when it comes to finances. The report showed that only four in 10 women are comfortable with their investment knowledge. Would it surprise you girls to know that I actually knew that before I researched it? I mean, why do you think I wanna talk to you about money so much, right? Okay, by the way, I got that information from a CNBC article published in October of 2021. Even without investing, most women actually run their household spending needs and budget, like literally home economics. So, the days of girls having to be bad at math to get a guy's attention in class is those are completely null and void at this point. Men aren't better at money. They are just more confident in their abilities. And in fact, they may be worse at money management than you, possibly by a long shot, but they'll make you think as if you suck if you let them. I have a tendency to assume that anything stated with confidence by a man in a suit with a lovely deep voice is basically the gospel truth. And I don't know if this is a bias that is ingrained in my brain because I want to listen to my dad or, you know, if this is a shared experience among women, I'm not sure. But the reality is is that me, these men can walk into the room and they can just tell us the most complete gibberish and if they say it confidently enough they'll convince literally everyone in the room that what they just said is actually correct people will believe them just because they are that confident guys sit around and talk about money and honestly they do it in a way that is meant to impress other dudes let's be real they may even do it in a way that's meant to make you less confident and more confused on purpose that's why we need girl talk to include money we should totally be talking about nfts and yeah i'll get into them in the crypto week we may not want to invest in them right now but we need to at least understand the market trends and what's happening with crypto nfts all that jazz so we can be informed money managers So we're going to be getting into a whole lot more things that are closer to home for you next time. We won't be talking on such a high-level philosophical scale in the next episode. And before the next episode, though, I have to give you girls a little bit of homework. Okay? You're going to need to get all of your ducks in a row. And I need you to know the following things. All right? So take notes. How much money you make. How much money you save in your 401k or 403b, if any, what your take-home pay is. So that means, you know, not just what your salary is that they told you at the time that you, you know, started your job, but also, you know, what it is each paycheck that you actually take home after your medical insurance, your dental insurance, your vision your life insurance policies, whatever you pay for, all the taxes, after all that's taken out and you get your paycheck and it hits your bank account, how much is that? That is what we call take home pay. So you need to know that. I need you to know what you spend every month and you don't have to know all the ins and outs of all the little random things like how much Starbucks you spend your money on yet. But you do need to know what your rent or your mortgage payment looks like. Renters insurance, homeowners insurance, what your utility bills look like. Approximately, you can get a good average going there. So you can say, oh, I have to pay $15 to Netflix and I pay roughly $150 a month for, you know, gas and electric. Whatever the case may be, whatever your bills and your utilities are, I need you to know kind of roughly that one big number. I don't need you to know all the details. You can know all the details. But you need the one big number, how much you spend every month. Okay? And then I want you to pay attention to where your fun money goes to. So do you spend a lot of money on Starbucks, like I just said? Do you spend a lot of money on Chick-fil-A? Do you spend a lot of money on going out and getting your hair done? Is that even fun money to you or is that an essential? How often do you get your nails done? Do you get an eyebrow wax? Do you have a Massage NB membership? Where is this money going? You kind of need a picture of where it's going. Now, I know that sounds like a lot. So let me tell you how I would do it. The easiest way is to get an app that consolidates all your accounts so that you can view them in one place. I personally use the Mint app. Again, not a paid partnership. I really use this app. I have it on my phone. I check it almost daily. And the reason I like it is because it has a website and a phone app. It's pretty easy to use and it's trustworthy. So the people who run the Mint app Also run Quicken and TurboTax, which is how I do my taxes every year. It's the Intuit company. You can link your bank accounts, your credit cards, your mortgage, your auto loan. You can monitor your home price. So you'd input your address and it'll use Zillow to monitor the home price for you. You can monitor your car value. So again, you would go put in your make, model, and mileage on the website. For some reason, it only lets you do it on the website. And then it'll use the Kelly Blue Book value to tell you how much your car would be worth. If you do all of that and you get it all set up, you'll have a high level picture of your net worth constantly at your fingertips without doing any extra math and You'll have consistent monitoring of your credit score. So, no more burying our heads in the sand, my beautiful little ostriches. It's time to face your fears. You can't fix your funds without looking at your funds first. Okay, it's okay. Have another mimosa. Calm down. Breathe. You'll be fine. All right. The reason I'm pushing pushing you to get that big picture of your finances together is because next time we are going to talk about the baddest fee. No, not you, not me, not even billionaire Beyonce. Budget, everyone's fave, I know. We're going to talk about how much you should be saving and why yes I said should should be saving we're going back to basics and we're setting ourselves up for success this is personal finance 101 and school is in session ladies we will also talk about credit credit scores credit cards and the overall credit game yes everything is a goddamn game we will touch briefly on debt how much you should have if any Why? Is any debt okay? So get your money picture together, babes, before brunch next Sunday. And until then, may your mimosas and bank accounts always be bottomless. Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, brought to you by CamWorks, LLC. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host and do not represent the opinions of CamWorks LLC. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and CamWorks LLC remind you to please drink responsibly.